You're listening to The Opioid Matrix, A Journey into the Rabbit Hole, a Rigaku podcast. This is a show that will examine how illicit narcotic trafficking is affecting every aspect of our society to include law enforcement, harm reduction programs, and addiction. Let's start to unpack the issues together. All right. Hi, everyone. We're back here for another episode of The Opioid Matrix, A Journey into the Rabbit Hole. I'm here with with Michael Brown, as usual, and we have a very special guest today that I would like to introduce. We have Bradley from Build, Inc. in Chicago. So, Bradley, can you tell us a little bit more about your organization and your background? Yeah, sure, Jan, and, and thank you for having me here. Uh, I'm Bradley Johnson. I'm the Chief Community Officer for Build, Inc. Uh, in Chicago, and we are a comprehensive youth service agency. We've been around since 1969, working with young people across the spectrum of risk from justice-involved, gang-involved young people to young people who are uh, needing to be in an after-school program. And we work with young people between the ages of six to the mid-20s or emerging adults. Okay. And so I've been with Build about five years now, but have a lot of experience working uh, with nonprofits. But I also worked for 12 years at the uh, Cook County Juvenile Detention Center here in Chicago. Okay, so that's um, that's what I'm I'm curious about. So, how did you get involved um, where you are now? Uh, you know, I, I want to say it was coincidental. Uh, I I had actually left the uh, Cook County Juvenile Detention Center uh, after 12 years because I saw it as a revolving door, oh. um, and I was pretty disenchanted with the circumstances of uh, the communities that our young people were coming from Mm -hmm. and then returning back to and then the system itself. And so I actually left and I actually moved to Colorado where I worked for a ministry. Uh, But then after about four years, I returned back to Chicago and I needed to work. And I started Mm -hmm. volunteering for a nonprofit in uh, my old neighborhood on the west side of Chicago. And then I did that for a while and ran programs, operated programs, learned about nonprofits, uh, and community engagement. And then I came over to build. Uh, build I've known since I worked at the juvenile detention center. And I worked okay. there like in the 90s through the early 2000s. Yep. And Build was inside the juvenile detention center providing uh, services to young people who were detained who were about to be released to make oh, sure okay. they were connected to resources and services. And so I came over to Build uh, in the role of community engagement, director of community engagement and strategic mm-hmm. partnerships. And then from there, I was a director of, of core programs, which are intervention, which Mm -hmm. deals with our uh, justice involved and gang involved young people, Uh, prevention services, which is all of our out of school time activities for young people from elementary through high school age, and then education services, which which is called Building Futures as well, that looks at all post-secondary for our Mm -hmm. young people, whether they're going to work or they're going to a college or a workforce training program. And then from there, Director of External Affairs, as we are now growing and we're building, actually constructing, uh, uh, adding on to our existing building, uh, oh, wow. more space for gym programs, a STEAM education center and all those things. And so I was responsible for making sure I connected with the community and young people uh, about that project. And so now I'm the chief community officer. And so... Okay. You know, so the spectrum has really grown. So it's about right. making sure that we are in touch with what's happening around us. 
Okay. So yeah, you've been doing this type of work for a long time now. And so I'm curious, you know, back even in the, in the 90s to now, what have you, I mean, you talked a little bit about how things weren't really changing um, back then, but I'm, I'm really curious if you've seen the trends um, of the, of the people you guys are servicing, you know, how, how things have changed from back then until now, you know, what are, how have the, what are the problems and, and how have they either changed or gotten worse? Right. Well, you know, I'll say from my time with the juvenile detention center, when I worked there, like I, when I started there, I worked with the youngest kids. They came in as young as eight wow. years old. Uh, and then by the time I left, I was working with the young people who were in their teens, but they were okay. tried as adults or charged as adults. So they were called automatic transfers. And many were there for drug-related charges or uh, uh, crimes or even you know murder. But all those were tied in some way, shape or form back to drug, to the drug mm-hmm. trade and the war on drugs. Uh, and so the problem with that is that those kids in the 90s are now the parents mm. of the young people that we're serving now at Build. Or they're the uncle or the older person. Either way, there's a, there's a generation that came after them that they've produced. Um, and with the mass incarceration and the war on drugs and all those things, it just created this cycle that has perpetuated um, many of the, exacerbated many of the uh, issues that happen on the ground and in our communities and with our families. Hey, Bradley, this is uh, Mike Brown. Hey, thank you again for uh, taking the time to join us. But um, yeah, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. I've been with, I was with DEA for about 32 years. I worked in Detroit, Houston, and a lot of other cities. And, you know, the problem was generational drug trafficking, right? I've seen at least three generations. Um, when I started, 14-year-olds who grew up and had kids at 16, their kids then got into drug trafficking. Their fathers were in prison. Their mothers were, you know, either on drugs, uh, addicted, or in prison. And then you're talking another generation. So we have three generations of, of crime families, and now we have the increase in narcotics coming into, especially, you know, African-American communities, communities of color, further exacerbating that problem creating additional um, incentives, if you will, to stay in drug trafficking as a means of, of, of survival, a means of life, a means of culture. How do we break that cycle with so many, you know, so much more drugs coming into the community, especially now fentanyl? And Chicago especially has seen an increase in, uh, in gang, gang affiliation. I think there's anywhere from 100 to 150,000 gang members in 70 different gangs. And under uh, former Mayor Emanuel, he disbanded the gang unit, replaced that with the beat patrol, which some will say has not been as successful. So in your opinion, as the director of, of Build Inc., what, what solutions um, do we need? Uh, you know, a whole of government approach, um, what can work to break that generational cycle? Mm-hmm. Well, definitely a whole, of government approach. There has to be some alignment. So here in Chicago, we have Cook County, we have state of Illinois, we have the city of Chicago, and then you may also have some interaction with uh, the federal uh, government. Uh, but all these agencies sometimes have different goals, different ways yeah. of operating, 
Uh, and then there's different policies, different procedures, and you know, and they step on each other's toes or fumble the ball a lot. Uh, and not to, just to criticize, but it's just in, inherent in different systems and institutions coinciding. And so, and I'll go a step beyond it. You need a whole community approach as well. So you also need the schools to be on board. You need all of our elected officials to be on board. Um, but there's also got to be a will uh, to actually do something because see, there's also a, stig a stigma and there's a stereotype uh, type attached to uh, the drug trade and why it persists in communities of color, definitely communities like the Austin neighborhood, the West Side of Chicago. Uh, and so really to address it, you actually have to address some of the, uh, the issues that actually attract people to it in the first place. It is not because of intentionality to be, uh, you know, towards criminality. Sometimes it's a measure of that's what's around me. And so, as you mentioned about generational uh, drug uh, trafficking and, and criminality, uh, many times that's what young people grow into and know. Uh, but then you also have communities that have been devastated with trauma and violence. When you think about uh, young people who lose both parents, uh, who, who you know, might lose a parent or even a relative to gun violence, uh, or, you know, or somebody's incarcerated, so they never have that access. And so, like I said, I work with young people who were in juvenile detention in the 90s. Their parents now, those young people, especially those who were tried as adults, they got juvenile life, essentially, many did. So they were uh, 13 years old, they wouldn't see the streets until their mid twenties. And so their developmental time was spent incarcerated. Number one, they went in, they weren't educated in the first place. Mm -hmm. They dealt with a lot of trauma in their lives. And so now you put them right back out and then say, get a job. But then with our system, there's a definitely, uh, there's definitely a stigma attached to incarceration. And when you have a record, so employment is really almost impossible. Uh, you don't have the, the work skills, the life skills, or any of those things to actually succeed. And so all those play into a point. And so when you have somebody offering you an opportunity to earn some money uh, where you could pay your, your bills and take care of your mom or do whatever, uh, people take it without even thinking about that makes me a criminal. So we have to think about a lot of other parts. So there's a, a social uh, side to all of this as well. And so the other part, and I don't want to belabor this, but I think it's a matter of let's be real about what would really make a difference. Uh, the war on drugs does not work. It did not work. Uh, how do we address, like you have users, you have to, this is, this is a capitalist society. For anything to have value in a market, you have to have consumers of it. You have to have a, you, there's a market for it. If you take out the market, you you eliminate the you know the supply, so supply is, is 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 also tied to the market. So you have to look at what creates the market and address the market, and then also look at ways that you can shift uh, our, our thinking around um, drug use, uh, mm -hmm. so that you you get it out of the shadows, because instead of having people in alleyways and, and places like that, how can we address that in a more well, effective way? I think you hit, hit a good a good point. It's supply and demand, you know. And in talking to you know various police agencies, um, harm reduction specialists, recently in Virginia, talking to a group of um, 
former drug or substance abusers. And I asked them that specific question and they kind of said the same thing you did. But herein lies the problem. You have, as you said, you know, this high recidivism rate with young kids going into jail young, coming out in their 20s and then getting into drug distribution, but they're selling specifically to their communities, right? So in some parts of New York and Baltimore, I've talked to some rehabilitative uh, harm reduction organization. They're saying the young men we're trying to help are the very ones who are then um, playing their own communities with drug trafficking instead of saying, no, we won't sell drugs to our, our community. Uh, because, you know, if you're black and you're South Side Chicago, you're not going to go to the Italians or the Irish or the Vietnamese sections and sell narcotics. Narcotic distribution is a social networking um, aspect that is really restricted to your own ethnic groups other than those who distribute wholesale. So how do we address, uh, how do we work with young kids or those young adults who come out of jail with a criminal record and try and convince them not to continue to plague their communities and addict their communities to narcotics. Therefore, you know, you're in this historical, what I call grandfather loop. It just keeps repeating itself. And we have to break that cycle, either with a jobs program, federal funding, working with the mayor's office to get more job creation. So when people come out of jail, there's a system in place where they don't have to go back to, well, I have no other choice but to sell narcotics to people within my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, Michael, there's a few steps to that. And number one, you know, one thing that I do want to say is that, uh, like, where we are based here in um, Chicago along the west side, we're right next to the 290 Expressway. And they actually call this area the, the Heroin Highway. Wow. So between uh, Laramie, which is where we are, and then a few miles east is where people come from all over and they're not only from our community who actually are the main, um, like the main market for the, the drug use because the neighborhoods that actually are decimated by it, they saw a population decline. So mm-hmm. the number of people actually live in those num- uh, neighborhoods are, are not enough to really sustain. It is a profitable trade. It's because of the suburban folks that are coming here. I, I've seen folks like some, some white folks around here just they don't leave. They just wander all around the area where the drugs are being sold. So it's it's more than just a community. Now a way out of this. And one thing I've said and I said this over and over again and we use this to build. Say no to drugs, say put the guns down, all that stuff sounds great, but that doesn't work. What happens is if you tell them to put something down, you have to put something in, in their hands and in place. So with organizations like Bill, there's another organization, UCAN, uh, mm-hmm. Institute for Nonviolence, there's other groups who, when we work with young people, we provide them with new opportunities, uh, new ways of thinking. And then you also have to start reaching young people sooner. You have to get to them while they're in elementary school, before they get to those junior high ages. Eight years old is the prime time to start uh, working with young people, and not just young men, it's young men and women to expose them to more. Uh, then the other thing that we have to address is concentrated poverty. And so when you live in a community that has lack of resources, lack of businesses, lack of infrastructure, um, uh, the streets, the roads, the there's so many things that tell you that you're not worth anything. 
uh, that you have to, those have to be addressed. And so those things are all things we have to look at, but opportunity is important. And we talk about jobs and, and, and things like that. That sounds good, but the reality is, and from my experience, is that those jobs are not created. We have to do something different. We have to create the jobs. Uh, we have to create uh, the economy for it. You know, there's things that can be done in our community. We have to address uh, in Chicago stuff like our trade unions that are are very segregated and homogenous and controlled so that those trades and those jobs that are well paying and my father my father was a contractor made a good living uh those are not opportunities that young people can get into those factories and and middle income manufacturing jobs that used to be in our neighborhood uh all left and they you know moved overseas and they moved to the far suburbs and so you have to put some opportunity here so if you want uh you know, these individuals involved in these uh, things, these negative uh, and drug trade, you have to provide some other opportunity, but you have to start earlier with the exposure. Well, I was just going to ask, Bradley, I'm curious, do you have people in the community, are they, are they coming to you for help or do you find you guys are going out to look and help them? It's both. Okay. So me, like, for instance, we have a, a crisis response team. We have a, a street intervention an outreach team uh, who actually they go to these corners where young people are at and where they're trafficking drugs uh, and go and offer them. Do you do you want to uh, have opportunities? Do you, would you like to work? I can help you. But you have to understand that it takes several times of going because trust has been broken. There are so there have been so many programs, programs, I call them programs, but they're bridges to nowhere that offer or sell a dream and then renege on that dream because the government when you change over leadership uh there's a program it's two years then it disappears there's no funding for it anymore and so uh that just drops off these programs and so now you can't even continue working but then you also have to connect them to something and so uh it, you know it's this cycle but we do reach out. And then from the young people that we reach, we build that trust. They bring young people to us. Okay. They start to recommend us because we built the trust with them. They know that we're for real and they know that we care. And so we offer all types of opportunity, even employment. We, we, we have taken our young people where we buy them the clothes, we prep them for interviews, do the resumes, we help them pull this stuff together, whether they need to get back in school. We, we walk them through everything to make sure that they get every opportunity that they can get. I think you make a good point about, about resources. Let me just, let me just shift the gear, move the, the topic of the conversation to the political arena. So now you have a mayor, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who does not get along with law enforcement or local or federal and does not really get along with the federal government. I see you're pushing a more progressive leftist policy if you don't have political alignment at the very high levels, like you said, nothing else trickles down. You don't get to the street level. You don't get the long-term infrastructure support you need. And I've seen that in the government. Every two to three years, people change and then a whole new program comes in. You know, and it may take me two years to get a program off the ground. By the time I get it moving, somebody else comes in and says, no, no, we're going to go this way. So is there a way for you to bridge that gap between the mayor's office, law enforcement, and, and federal funding, right, to create a long-term plan, say a six-year strategy that stays in place regardless 
of who goes into the mayor's office to give you some social protection, an umbrella, so to speak. So when Mayor Lori Lightfoot's out, you may get a, another Democrat or Republican who go a different way. And then, like you said, your kids are like, you know, another another fake dream, another unicorn that you want us to chase. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I I don't really when I think about the like the political arena, uh, I think what what is really going to take and even to take the mayor out of the equation, it takes uh, actually educating and activating the people. So uh, we're actually um, doing some work around creating the the uh, Peace and Justice Center. So we're in our new building, we're gonna have this space, but it's more of a, a civic education space. Uh, we'll teach about restorative justice. We'll teach about um, uh, community organizing. We'll you know bring in people to help others, uh, community residents learn about policy and advocacy because it really, honestly, when it comes to people in office, if they have people in their ear, uh, people at their doorsteps, uh, demanding and knowing what's due to them, they tend to have to follow suit. Now, the other part of it is that our neighborhoods, the neighborhoods that are be uh, besieged by crime or by violence, that's not coincidental. And that won't be fixed in six years. Now, six years would be great to have a six year program, but the issues that we're facing in Chicago in particular, Definitely, I'm a product of the West Side of Chicago, where uh, it's been about 50 years of disinvestment, 50 years of of, of segregation, 50 years of of of, of intentional uh, cut off from access to uh, to to things that uh, most communities are able to have access to. So. Uh, there's got to be a commitment across the board. Yes, should there be alignment? I think that there's the only way to get that is really through the people, through activating people where we become uh, more aligned on what's essential and what's necessary. But when it comes to the mayor, you know, we actually have a pretty good relationship with the mayor. We have a good relationship with our uh, congressmen. Uh, we have a good relationship with our state reps. Uh, and so we're leveraging those relationships uh, to make sure that we're able to become a voice for our community. So it, it, we're flipping the script, I believe. And there's a lot of organizations as well where we're, we actually have power and that we don't utilize. The elected officials need us uh, because they need our support. They need our, uh, our, you know, our influence right. so that they can hold on to power. So we have to leverage that. And what about this? One of the biggest influencers in the black community is the church. Are you working with the large black churches, the pastors to motivate their communities to get out? You know, I see people protesting all the time, you know, whether it's BLM, gay rights, etc. But I don't see the church out there in the street protesting drug trafficking, protesting the government. Hey, why aren't we getting some of the funding that everybody else is getting? You know, this Build Back Better plan, $3 trillion, I think I saw a report $150 million going to libraries across the country for wokeism. You know, if I was in Chicago, I'd be like, hold on a second, we're in the middle of a war. We need $150 million here to save this city. Why aren't the churches, or can you work with the churches to get a louder voice? Yeah, well, I'll say this. Um, 
That's partially true. So churches are actually active. I know here on the West Side, there's the Leaders Network and the Ministers, uh, West Side Ministers Coalition. They're out front. The problem is, is that the media doesn't pay attention to that. The media pays attention to whatever's the hottest thing, and that's going to be Black Lives Matter. That's going to be, uh, you know, the um, the uh, the pride and, and those things. So right now, that's what's hot, and so right. that's that's partially true. And then the other part is what we have to also recognize is that the church as a whole does not have the same influence it once had. When you actually look at polls about the the state of this nation, very very few people much fewer people attend church nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so of the larger churches, say for instance, um, uh, there's with the Leaders Network, but then it's Bright Star Church that's on the South Side. They actually have, they go out in the streets, they do policy advocacy, they actually set up clinics, uh, they do street outreach, uh, they have mental health services, emergency services, a, a call line. Uh, there's there's a lot actually happening. And I think that that's the part that we have to be able to get some focus on because what you will find when you actually get into our neighborhoods, yes, there's drug trafficking, but there's a whole lot more happening uh, in our neighborhoods. Now, what's necessary and needed, I think are, we do need some long-term and sustained funding. We do need a new approach from the federal state and even the city level of how they approach uh, these issues and problems. There has to be a, a, a paradigm shift. So the mentality of, of these people in these communities or these folks who are selling drugs, like this is like this uh, criminal mindset or behavior and attitude, that's not accurate. And so when you get down in the weeds and you actually see people, and I said this from the years I worked at Juvenile Detention Center, Eight out of 10 of those young people who are there would do something different with their lives, with the opportunity. There's two who they're going to end up incarcerated or, or in a graveyard. Yeah. The same thing now on any corner right now, eight out of 10 would do something different with a real opportunity. And so where are those real opportunities? And so, you know, I think it's proposing uh, what some of the things we're proposing right now is to have community ambassadors. You have to take the people who live in the communities, even these same populations, and flipping the script with them, arming them with information, knowledge to share with their community, uh, with, and they get compensated for it, uh, to actually go and then they can spread the word and, and, and educate the community about resources and, and things like that. Then the other part is, how can we do like what, uh, what FDR did? Uh, after uh, to, to, to launch and build up the economy and, and get people to work. Those, those street cleaning crews and all those different, we have to create those jobs because you have young people who would rebuild the community if we're able to employ them to do that. We could convert vacant lots. We've done that before too. Convert vacant lots into community spaces, uh, rehab and rebuild uh, uh, dilapidated and boarded up homes. Uh, clean up in our neighborhoods. Those are all things that can be done, uh, but there's no will to do that. There's no will to, uh, you know, enlarge the harm reduction strategies of having safe places where you could actually give treatment to drug users uh, so that they could come in, but they could, if they're going to do drugs, do it safely, but at the same time, wrap around services attached to that. So now you can start breaking the cycle. We have to do things differently. 
No, I agree with you 100%. You know, as, a, as an analyst, a strategic planner, I would say you need, you need, a, you need a professional strategic planner to come in there. Um, somebody, you know, former military, someone who has experience in, in diagnosing the problem and then putting together a long-term strategic plan, maybe 10 years, you know, and uh, uh, fixing funding and then having that whole government approach sit down, law enforcement, mayor's office, the White House, and say, this is the problem. If we have this amount of money for this amount of time, regardless of the administrations, we can break this cycle. And it includes all the things you just said, but you've got to get your elected officials to support a long-term strategy plan because, you know, election cycles are all based on people wanting to get in and out of office. So you have to get a plan in place that removes that political necessity for re-election and leaves it there. No matter who's in office, you guys have your funding, you have your program management, and then in 10 years, because I've seen this work. I saw it work in Afghanistan. I was there nation building, right? You go in, first you have to remove the violent element, and then you can build. And in 20 years, Afghanistan changed from when I went in 1990 to 2022. It changed dramatically. And then we left it, and it reverted right back to the way it was. You know, you have the Marshall Plan after World War II, long-term strategic plan to rebuild Europe, to rebuild Japan. And it worked, but it took 20, 30 years. So there is an answer. It's just a matter of getting the political will and the right people in place to say, this is a solvable problem, but we need, we need an analyst, we need a strategic planner to come in here and put it together. And then, because the funding is there. You've got three, maybe two and a half years to pull funding out of the administration for harm reduction. $320 million is floating around. You've got to get some of that funding, but you have to have a plan, put that in place, and I guarantee you in 10 years, you will see a whole different Southside Chicago. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, I've seen that over and over again. And so I think, you know, but again, it's got to be the political will to do it. Uh, and you have to let go of these uh, party line uh, philosophies and get to a people first strategy. Because when you look at the, if, if we really think about it, uh, if we want to look at the economy of the United States, all those things, it makes sense to address the issues that are happening with the least of these or in the communities that, that uh, need the most help. There's a benefit to that. And so sometimes people see, you know, they label things as handouts and really it's a measure of we have to provide the opportunity uh, for people. And, and honestly, it's old and it's due. Uh, there has been this this prevailing uh, theme, definitely when it comes to the African American community, that we're the problem, we're a problem, and that no matter what, you know, we're just this. There's been many labels and stereotypes that have been institutionalized and woven into our government and government system that has actually created many of these issues and problems that we're you know, dealing with. So I think it's a, a matter of how do we change that philosophy? How do we begin to move the needle on these issues and do it realistically? Um, Bradley, I was also uh, curious. I know we're talking a lot about um, kind of long-term outlook on, on the situation in Chicago, but I want I'm, I'm really curious to hear about what you've seen day-to-day on the streets with the rise in fentanyl coming into the country. Yeah, well, you know, definitely, like I mentioned before, this section near us is called the the heroin highway. And so what I've seen 
is you have, I think there's, it's almost like watching zombies right. in certain areas, uh, but the increased deaths um, and overdoses uh, that have been happening. And so what I've seen though is also, there's the West Side um, Opioid uh, Task Force mm. that started back in 2016 under State Representative, uh, State of Illinois Representative LaShawn Ford, where they have a task force uh, that has been armed to go into the, the areas that are highly saturated with, with uh, drug use, and drug users, and they're providing a Narcan, um, they're giving, you know, needles, safe kits, things like that. Um, what they're trying to do is do more harm reduction. Uh, and then also, uh, there's another group that also goes out and they actually uh, connect uh, users with resources as well. Uh, it's just, you know, and that definitely with the pandemic, it exacerbated the issue. Um, there's been, you know, so much going on that, you know, it's really sad, it, you know, with fentanyl and, and all that. I think that there's more of awareness about it because it actually went beyond our community and into middle American, uh, middle class communities and, and they're impacted too. So right. now there's a will to actually do something about it. Um, I just think that the 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 issues that that keep recurring and happening it's uh i think it's a measure of you there's got to be a preventive side but then there's also got to be a way to uh how do we stop the use of even fentanyl what's the the measuring approach because they're not it's not like these guys on the west side have the factory or anything that's producing this stuff so how is there the access? We have to cut off the supply and the access to it as well. So, you know, that's something that's worth figuring out. Yeah, you know, I've, I've spoken many times about the, the fentanyl issue and the origin. Many people don't realize the origin of the issue, and that's the precursor chemicals from China and India to Mexico. And then Mexican cartels make the fentanyl and they push it into the United States, which is there's nothing you can do about that. That is a heavily political diplomatic problem, which the State Department has to manage. In my opinion, they're not managing that. You know, it's with DEA for 32 years and the State Department's ability to work with the China, it's just not a priority given all the other issues. Um, so you're dealing with, you're dealing with the, the blowback of that failed form of drug policy, which is only going to continuously increase tenfold the amount of fentanyl. And now we're seeing methamphetamine you saw in New York. Uh, five tons of methamphetamine went to New York. New York never used methamphetamine, but now because of the ability to mass produce, it's it's everywhere. I'm sure it's in Chicago. So you're now fighting against a tsunami of drugs coming in to, to Chicago that you can't stop. So now how do you manage and implement these programs when, when 150,000 gang members see an opportunity to all become multimillionaires overnight, especially with fentanyl? You simply can't, you can't keep pace with that, that deterrent, with that criminal acceleration, right? More kids are going to say, hey, I'm going to go sell fentanyl for $40 a pill, uh, and I'm not going to wait 10 years for your program. So then we see almost a complete decimation of black communities, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, Baltimore, uh, St. Louis, Louisiana. 
you know, in some parts of California. Um, so now there has to be pushback from the local community to the federal government saying, hey, you're not doing enough on the diplomatic international levels because everything is connected. The connectivity, right, from the international side and it, at your level, people may not be thinking about the international side and how important that is because that is fueling all the problems you're having. With the increase of the flow of, you know, these illicit drugs and fitting all into our communities, what I would actually ask for is that on the federal and the governmental side, a commensurate amount of resource side, because really the way to negate the young people who are willing to take that risk is providing other opportunities. They will work for less money. They will do it for the reduction of risk and the safety and real opportunity. So we have to balance that out. Uh, uh, you know, we've got to offer something more. Reach out to the community. The church has put together a panel and we'll come up and let's have a big discussion about it. So okay. people are in the problem and say, hey, this is what we need. And then we push this to the government, to your local officials and come up with a, you know, a commensurate, like you said, some kind of uh, request, right? Yep. To, to yep. local That's state. That's a great idea. And once people understand the, the whole issue, right? Your level, my level, they'll be like, holy cow, this is a this is a much bigger problem than we thought. So <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we're always here to help. So let us know. Okay. Thank All you right. so much, Bradley, with Built Chicago. Thank you. Good luck. Stay safe. All right. Bye bye. Rigaku Analytical Devices is a U.S.-based manufacturer of advanced analytical equipment for the identification of unknown substances. Utilizing ramen in our devices means we can non-destructively scan through packaging with a result of identification in less than one minute. Rigaku is committed to supporting and partnering with your agency to tackle this problem together. To learn more, visit rigakuanalytical.com. You've been listening to The Opioid Matrix, A Journey into the Rabbit Hole, a Rigaku podcast. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. No matter the controversy around the illegal drug supply chain, our mission is to save lives. Thanks for listening. Until next time.